Hello, rheumatology fans. Welcome to Chewing It Over. Um, as you will notice, my I am not Jack Chew. Um, it's Jack March here today. Um, I was supposed to be speaking to the wonderful Jack Chew, but unfortunately, he was unavailable at relatively short notice. So the good news is we are going to do an Ask Me Anything um, all about rheumatology. And um, hopefully, there will be some interesting questions and some interesting answers for us to get our teeth into. And um, it'll be a good opportunity for me to um, flex my uh, question answering uh, brain cells, let's say that. Um, and hopefully it'll be a good distraction from some of the things that have been occurring around the world. But it will be Christmas soon. So hopefully everybody is ready and raring to go for the old uh, Christmas time. Um, hopefully there is some people in the old um, ether and I'm not just talking to myself. So if someone could give me a thumbs up in the um, in the chat function to let me know you can hear me, then that would be wonderful. Um, please do pop any questions into the chat um, and I will endeavor to answer those as we go along. Um, and if you're listening to this back um, in the well, I suppose in the future for us now, um, as I record this, um, then please do feel free to get in touch on social media with any questions and I will endeavour to answer them um, in various other ways as well. Of course, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. If you just type in the rheumatology physio in there, then you can usually find me and come at the top. So if anybody is tuning in, can you uh, just give me a thumbs up in the chat function to make sure that I can hear you? Uh, sorry, that you can hear me even. Be uh, interesting turn of events uh, that you can hear me and, um, and then pop any questions that you have in there for me and I will crack on with answering them. I've got a couple that have already been sent in from my social media posts that um, I put out a few hours ago saying that I was going to be doing um, this Ask Me Anything. The first one is from Adrian Davies on Twitter. Thank you for getting in touch. Um, and he asks, when assessing for enthesitis, which emphesis would you normally assess? Um, and he goes on to caveat that just close to the presenting condition, or would you also look at some of the more commonly affected sites? Cheers. Um, cheers to you, Adrian, for dropping the question in. Um, so there's two uh, sort of directions we can go in this um in talking about enthesitis. So we'll talk about uh, peripheral spinal arthritis to begin with. So we're talking about something like psoriatic arthritis um, or maybe an enthes um, um, a, um, enteropathic arthritis related to the gut where the primary disease process, let's say, is um, a peripheral enthesitis. And that's likely to be why they're coming in to see you as an MSK therapist. So in which case um, they're presenting with um, issues and I, I'm guessing we're already thinking there might be something inflammatory going on. So they've got some um, comorbidities that we're interested in, like psoriasis or Crohn's disease or colitis. In which case, when we're starting to look at the end theses, then what I would suggest is that we are looking at the symptomatic sites. So this would be the... Um, uh, let's say it's the Achilles, so we're looking at the heel um, for that insertion and thesis, and that is the most common location to get enthesitis would be in the heel, um, so either the plantar fascia insertion or the Achilles insertion. Um, so I would assess there. It is a bit difficult to clinically 
um, differentiate our enthesitis from a load-based tendinopathy, although some of the load-based tendinopathies often tend to be mid-portion rather than more insertional, but plantar fascia is, is more difficult. So Achilles, it might be mid-portion and then it's less likely to be enthesitis because obviously it's not down at that enthesis right in the heel. But um, if it's plantar fascia, so more under the base of the heel, then it is more difficult. Sometimes when people present, they will have a very red, hot, angry um, insertion. And then it is easier to consider that to be a likely inflammatory emphasitis. In which case, um, then that uh, does make life a little bit easier for you. Um, but quite often that won't present like that and recently did read a paper on psoriatic arthritis and they tend to not present with such overtly inflammatory symptoms which is not very helpful at all helpful at all um so if someone is presenting with um an insertional heel pain then i would be assessing that um as normal what are the load-based factors etc etc anything else that might contribute to having a um, an insertional tendinopathy um it gets more interesting if they've obviously got bilateral symptoms or if they um, don't have any load changes in recent history that means that they um, that hasn't been seen as a trigger um, but also multiple tendon sites as well so if you've got um, the heels involved maybe the elbows maybe the lateral hip something like that so you're jumping around the body locations either at the time or in the past medical history then you can start to think okay how likely is it that this person's had four, five, six tendinopathies? And how is it more likely that they might have had a more systemic um, inflammatory pathology? So that's what I would start to do with the um, with the peripheral type patients. Um, Richard Saxton's just tuned in here and he says, hi, Jim. Hi, Richard. Thanks for tuning in. Um, my colleague there at Choose Health. Um, so the other option that we're really looking at here is in our um, in our axial patients. So these are patients with back pain. So when we look at data relating to axial spondyloarthritis, so conditions like ankylosing spondylitis um, and um, sciatic arthritis patients with axial symptoms, then quite a high proportion of them will have a peripheral tendon issue as well. Um, so again, at that point, then we will be looking at back pain, plus the tendon problems and again as i've already mentioned it the most likely place to see that is the achilles or the plantar fascia insertions throughout the heels um, but there is still a high incidence in the elbows and the lateral hip so we're looking at uh, medial endocopal uh, tennis elbow and uh, golfer's elbow um, and if anybody can uh, tune in and say epicondylopathy for me a few times i'd be really grateful um so we are looking at those sites and again we're looking at history of those or um coinciding with the back pain as well and it can be either so that you might have a preceding tendinopathy that might actually have been the first symptoms of the um of the spondylitis so it's important to go into depth there um, and again you want to be asking similar questions was it that there was a change in load and that was a clear trigger for um, bringing on those symptoms or was it completely out of the blue um, was it after an illness, an infection? Um, these kinds of questions are what we're really interested in. Of course, we're still going to go into family history, other interesting um, inflammatory problems. And we've, um, 
plenty of information which I can direct you to if need be around um, what those comorbidities look like. Um, we can start off in, in spondylitis, for example, using the SPADE tool as a good list there of how to um, how to ask those questions and which questions to ask about comorbidities. Um, it gives you a gives you a likelihood on uh, that patient having a spondylitis. So really, the first instance with enthesitis, we're going to follow the symptoms. But in the second instance, what we're going to do is we're really going to um, dig deep and ask those questions about whether there have been any um, uh, insertional tendinopathies in the past. Did they react like you would expect to to loading programs? Did they have an onset that you would have expected or a pro pro um, progression that you would expect? Um, and what happened with that and then you're piecing these things all together and then of course there is that final option where it might well be there's this very very red hot angry heel um, that um, looks very very inflammatory the other um, emphasis um, points like the elbows and the lateral hip they don't tend to give that very red hot angry um, set of symptoms because they are that bit deeper under the soft tissue so it, it tends to not be like that and they are smaller areas comparative to that large insertional heel um, area so hopefully that's got put some good meat onto the bones of um, enthesitis um, a really a couple of questions that i've been um, put into recently which are along similar lines but um, with regards to, to psoriatic arthritis is around nails and nail beds um what are we referring to rheumatology what are we not referring to rheumatology and it really is my answer to this is really built trying to build up this clinical picture and trying to stack your pieces of information one on top of another until you're confident that you're making the right decision the concern here of course is that there are components to the disease that we as msk therapists are not particularly well equipped to assess and the nails would be one of them nails and skin um, psoriasis particularly um, certainly I don't feel confident with assessing those and it's something that um, is a real challenge and so if we don't have that component of information that we're unable to create that full picture of a reasoning program and uh, process and that's going to impede us on making the right clinical differential diagnosis so it's something that we really need to start considering in these tendinopathy patients um, and in inflammatory spinal patients is whether if they've got a diagnosis of psoriasis previously fine that's great they've got a bit of dry skin then what is causing that do we think that's psoriasis do we not and certainly i'm not the person to be trying to um trying to sort that difficult situation out um, but if they have this diagnosis of psoriasis, are there nails involved um, and what are those nail changes? And it's really important that we are aware that those are something that can happen. And the fact that nail changes are associated with a much higher likelihood of having a psoriatic arthritis. So um, if we go back to our building of a clinical picture, then you would have some weight in your clinical reasoning added to um, having psoriasis or a past medical history of psoriasis or current psoriasis, you would add much more weight to having psoriasis with nail bed involvement. So cutaneous psoriasis only versus cutaneous and nail bed psoriasis. 
that was going to be much higher threat or sorry a much lower threshold for referral or much higher index of suspicion if that patient has those nail bed changes and understanding what those look like um, and having seen them before is a real challenge uh, because we tend to not pay too much attention so this is what brings me to the sort of crux of this question really which is similar to the one we had before are we looking if we've got upper limb symptoms are we just looking at the upper limb nails or the other way around lower limb and lower limb nails or are we looking at the um other limbs as well with regards to nail changes and the answer is yes i would be looking at all of them to make sure that we're um, fully assessing the nails of that patient so if you've got someone who comes in with bilateral um, tennis elbow for example and psoriasis then it will change or is likely to change your clinical reasoning thought pattern if you then take their shoes and socks off and they've got nail bed changes in their feet which you may not see in the in the fingers that's not necessarily going to happen that's in every single nail so i really would encourage you to put that into practice as something that you start doing with tendon pain, tendon pain patients is that you're assessing all of their nails and making sure even if it's upper limb you're still getting their shoes and socks off and looking at their lower limb nails or the other way around it can be a little bit of a weird um set up to the conversation but there are other things that are more embarrassing that we have to ask our patients or perceived as more embarrassing that we ask our patients so you know i frame it just like um you know i uh, if it's psoriasis it's much easier because i'll just if they've already got a diagnosis of psoriasis i'll just say you know psoriasis can affect your any of your nails and i need to check your toenails to make sure that that's not happening there um that's that's easy but i would still be doing it even in those patients without a diagnosis of psoriasis because these patients may have very mild psoriasis that they've never um sought medical care for but the other thing is that somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of psoriatic arthritis patients will get musculoskeletal symptoms or tendinopathy or, or, or joint problems before their psoriasis actually onsets so they might have um had this tendon pain for quite a long time and then their skin begins skin issues begin or their nail issues begin and they're seeing you a little bit further down like line for example they've been to orthopedics they've been to the gp they've been to various locations and they turn up with, with you after a period of time it might even be third fourth fifth physio that they've seen or fifth msk therapist they've seen and they've developed these symptoms as time's gone on and so we're building that clinical picture as things change so it is really important to make sure you get into the habit of doing that um, and understanding what it is that you're looking for. Um, and there are some characteristic changes of those nails that, um, that, you, that you want to be checking out. Uh, there are some pictures um, on my website you can find. But if you Google um, psoriatic nail changes, then those kind of pink, uh, pictures will come up. Um, they, uh, they are quite characteristic, even if they are quite difficult to um, to assess from an MSK therapist point of view is quite challenging. I suspect if you start working in somewhere like a first contact practitioner role um, and you're getting a lot of uh, these sort of unfiltered patients, I should say unscreened patients coming through and you're really thinking, oh, I'm just not confident with these skin changes, not confident with nail bed changes. Um, and there are obviously other things that, that, 
that occur at the nails um, and the skin, it might well be worth going and sitting in with dermatology for a day to understand some of the changes that occur there, or even into rheumatology um, if you found, thought that might be more appropriate and um, ask specifically if they've got any psoriatic patients that you could have a look at their nails um, and, and just assess that so you know what you're looking for because it really is something that once you've seen it then you know what you're looking for and you can rule other changes like fungal nail infections out um, which is a real problem and it's certainly like I say, said before certainly not within my skill set but it's this building of this clinical picture this evolving sort of clinical reasoning process that we're building up as we're going um, that we're going to try and do because um, this is where you go where is my line for referring to rheumatology um, and it's it's going to make swings and roundabouts depending on what you find and what you what you ref, what you um, weight differently and that's really challenging, especially in these times at the moment. COVID is still hanging around um, and still causing us problems. And the, and the backlog of sort of uh, rheumatology waiting lists and all different waiting lists is still problematic. So we want to be judiciously referring. We don't want to be over referring when we don't need to. But also we can't hold these patients back if they need to go to rheumatology. So the more detail we can get about our clinical reasoning process, the better referrals we can make, then um, the, the, the better we're going to do. So again, I would just direct you to the SPADE tool. You just need to type spadetool.co.uk into Google. That's a really helpful resource um, for assessing spondylitis patients or the possible spondylitis patients. It has a whole checkbox list of all the things that can be implicated. And you just tick the ones that a patient has and click um, show results. And it will give you a likelihood of how likely that patient is to have a spondylitis and whether you should refer them on to rheumatology or not. So a really useful way of backing up your clinical reasoning. Um, so we're cracking through, the, we're just over halfway through this. Any questions that you do have, please do put them into the chat function. Um, really interested in answering your um, questions here on Ask Me Anything. Um, and um, I'll try and get to as many of, uh, many of them as I can. Um, another question that I had um, come in was regarding um, female um presentations of axial spondyloarthritis and this was a little bit off the back of my re recent podcast i did about pregnancy and ankylosing spondylitis um and what we really need to understand is this these differences between women and men when they present um with axial predominantly axial symptoms so we are looking at about equivalent numbers um where women are going to get the same amount of axial spondyloarthritis as men are. It's not a male-dominated disease. We need to get rid of that belief system. Um, but what we know with women is that it's much harder to recognize and diagnose because what that tends to happen is they tend to present with less inflammatory sounding symptoms. So they tend to have less of the early morning stiffness of the spine, um, less of the activity-related improvement and rest-related deterioration, a bit less of the night pain these kind of symptoms they also tend to have more widespread pain so they they report trunk and buttock pain rather than spinal pain and um deep uh, sort of gluteal pain is, is a real problem so that it's just not so specific and then when we go into investigating them um their blood tests tend to be a little bit more equivocal as well so there's a slightly lower rate of hla b27 positivity um a slightly 
lower rate of the inflammatory markers being positive ESR and CRP, but also they're far less likely, much, much less likely to get in, um, changes on X-ray in their sacroiliac joints. So someone firing off a sacroiliac joint X-ray, they're going to pick up a few men where they won't pick up any women. So we're still seeing this delayed diagnosis for women um, as, as we go uh, down into, into extended periods of time, which is problematic. Because then when you follow those patients through, those female patients through, they actually tend to report a higher disease burden, uh, more widespread pain and more work productivity loss than men do. So it's certainly not that their disease is easier or lesser than men's is, just despite the fact that they don't get these um, these changes on, on x-ray, they're not getting fusion or erosions of the sacral leg joint, they're not getting fusions of their spine in such numbers that men do, but they're still, their functional loss is equal um, and their medicine loss, their use is equal as well. So they're certainly not getting a lesser disease, so we still need to be picking these, these um, ladies up. And this comes right back to the first question we got asked about entheses. And if you've got a lady with inflammatory sounding back pain, she's more likely to have a peripheral manifestation. So she's more likely to have a peripheral enthesitis than a man is. Um, so it, 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 you're looking for those peripheral tendinopathies. Um, so real challenge. I'm hoping to get a podcast out on that with, with a rheumatologist to get in some real good detail. Um, got a question here from Louise Huntley. Um, something certainly that I don't specialize so much in these days about hypermobility. So um, my general um, approach to hypermobile patients, and I'm, I'm assuming, Louise, you're asking when do we need to refer um, sort of outside of physiotherapy or outside of musculoskeletal practice. I, I'm um, swinging a guess at that. So for more of a medical uh, management process. So if it's um, my usual approach is if the patient has um, hypermobile joints and this is the main issue. Yeah, uh, Louise says yes, the outside of physio. So if the joints are the main issue, um, then physiotherapy really is the mainstay of, um, of treatment. We need medical input mo um, a lot for some management and also investigations um, for the less musculoskeletal um, uh, manifestations of hypermobility. So what we're really looking for is things like um, stretch marks and um, getting dizzy, changing position, um, which can be something associated with with a problem called POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, any problems with the gut, um, and especially if they're losing any weight, um, those kinds of kinds of issues. Um, then we're starting to look at, okay, do we need to refer these people outside um, to their specific medical disciplines um, for further investigations? Um, and anybody with um, severe disease as well, um, then multiple um, ex, uh, extra articular manifestations as well. There are, there are clinics in London and elsewhere where they'll do specific testing for um, Ehlers-Danlos um, syndrome as well. But it becomes really quite difficult because um, it used to be, uh, in some places still is, that rheumatology would be the unifying sort of place. But it 
Unfortunately, rheumatology, there's not really very much for the rheumatologist themselves to help the hypermobile patient with. It's multiple, often multiple joint pains, but from a medical point of view, the rheumatologist is really sort of um, quite hamstrung. It's not, not a lot that medications can do outside of um, POTS, the, the medications can help there. But um, the, the rheumatologists can rule out other potentially important diseases, um, but really it's hypermobile patients, unfortunately, don't really fit anywhere. So it's ideal if you've got somewhere locally which specializes in hypermobility, a physiotherapist or an equivalent GP with special interests um, that might specialize in managing hypermobile people so that they can centralize um, sort of the process provide them with the exercise and advice and pacing and all that kind of thing that the, those patients need. And then from that sort of hub, refer to cardiology if needs be, gastroenterology if needs be, um, out to specialist centres for genetic testing if needs be, but they're a long wait as well. Um, so it, it's a really challenging area, um, really difficult um, to manage. I would, my personal um, way of managing hypermobile patients is to keep them um self-managing as much as possible except for those um extra articular manifestations where they need specialist input um and um that that's sort of my my best advice really hopefully that's answered answered the question there louise um, but they are a really challenging subset of patients because it's this um um this problem that is it's not generated by an inflammatory process it's not it, it it's just the way that the body generates collagen it's just really stretchy so there's nothing medically that you can do to sort that problem out that's just something that's going to occur so they really need lots of muscular strength and muscular um, ability to hold their joint stable um, and being active as much as possible is going to be really really beneficial um, and that really, uh, I've seen in the past, that really impacts those extra articular manifestations as well. So things like POTS, etc. As soon as they start to lose their um, cardiovascular fitness, as soon as they start to lose their functional ability, those problems can become heightened as well because you're just not able to um, have your cardiovascular system function quite as well when you've when you've lost that fitness. So maintaining function early on is really important and keeping them reassured that they're going to be okay with exercise and things are going to going to move forwards is is really important. And picking them up early obviously helps that um, process. If they've if they extend that out for years and years and years before they are diagnosed or before they're helped and they have multiple dislocations and they have multiple sets of painful areas and they get very worried about um every time they do something they get a dislocation or they get lots and lots of pain then the whole cycle of things like persistent pain syndromes and so on and so forth uh, become problematic as well and compound the whole issue so it's certainly something we shouldn't be dismissing and we should be managed self-managing as best as we can with the help of the msk therapist and referring when we need to um, for those sort of medical inputs um that's uh louise oh we've got a follow-up bit um louise has said uh oh, i see so many that are scared to exercise because of pain agree can be very hard to manage and this is uh, this is one of the problems we have especially with this cohort is when they've had these symptoms for such a long time they become they do become so fearful and encouraging to them to exercise at that point is so hard and we need to as soon as we start seeing them, encourage them early on to keep exercising and keep active. Um, 
and it it really i've seen so many patients in the past where they had these symptoms as you know a teenager maybe young teenager um, 14 15 maybe um and they are removed from their pe sessions or they stop doing their activities and then you just see this decline off over time and they've really got to keep their activity levels off we up we will really keep um them reassured that they will be okay if they stay strong and fit um this coming in a really late stage is so much more difficult so much more challenging when they've got all those painful symptoms they've got all that fear um and picking them up earlier is much better and of course when we do pick them up later then we just really need to take a softly softly approach really try to build them up slowly um and do it on their terms as much as anything else so that they get a chance to accommodate to whatever they're they're doing um and then build up and what we'll, what I, we find is that um a lot of people they just have to go really slowly and much slower than they may want to for example because they've got to accommodate to the increased activity levels um and then before they start building on top of that and i just see too many too many people going too far too fast um lovely stuff so if we haven't got we're just about running out of time we've got a minute or so left um before we run out of time any last questions please do chuck me into the chat box and i'll try and get to them otherwise i will answer them across social media i want to direct you um to my website rheumatology.physio with plenty of resources on there all about rheumatology recently released dates for my courses in 2022 um i think there's one for exeter there's one for birmingham and there's a virtual one as well um covering all sorts of things about rheumatology lots of recognition um and the uh, in-person courses as well doing some management stuff as well got some new tweaks i've made to that course um coming up the other thing that i've got coming up in january is i've completely re um created my online course as well so the recorded online course there's going to be more content it's up-to-date content and little plug here apologies if you were to sign up for my recorded course now it will only be about it's only 120 pounds the price will go up in january um, but if you buy it now you will get upgraded for free in january to the to the um to the new relaunched course so that's worth doing uh, in my opinion obviously i'm highly biased having recorded it all of all of it myself uh, but if you head to rheumatology.physio forward slash shop um then you will find all of the links on there the book resources those courses that i just mentioned are there as well and um please go do go check that out and hopefully I'll be able to speak to you in person or online. And that um, is always my favorite way of doing it. Um, so thank you very much for tuning in today. Um, you can find, of course, all of my podcasts and blogs and stuff I record. Um, again, head to the website. You'll find that Rheumatology Physio Podcast um, is there as well subscribe to that i've got some really exciting stuff coming in january um going to do a whole series on axial spondyloarthritis i'm going to get some rheumatologists involved get some really good um in-depth information for us in msk so we really know where we stand um, on on referrals on management i'm going to um, hopefully speak to a stretch about management um, and we're going to get um, some really good information so that we can manage these patients as best we can um so i am totally out of time i'm overrunning Anybody that watches this show regularly will know that the music is going to be very, very loud in a second. So um, either mute me or to, or, uh, or um, reduce down and um, I will see you soon. Hopefully I might do another one of these soon. Um, but thank you for joining in. Thank you for your questions and hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. <laughs>